Okay, so this is our part three of our current event and weekly Bible study for April 26, 2009, regarding Disney. And uh, we're going to continue with this. I don't know how many parts this is going to end up being. Probably another, probably at least another three parts after this. Uh, but uh, this is part three. And continuing, this is from the book, The Art of Walt Disney. From Mickey Mouse to the Magic Kingdom by Christopher Finch um, on page 11. And there's an interesting and revealing statement made on page 11 that says, quote, By definition, public figures are known to everyone. Yet even after talking with some of Disney's closest associates, it is impossible to escape the conclusion that nobody really ever knew him. Always there was some aspect of his personality that was, quote, just out of reach. Those who got to know Walt Disney too closely make, made complaints, such as he was self-satisfied, intractable, and arrogant. He could bring his artist to tears in anger in a matter of seconds. Finch is not the only author who has tried to warn his readers that the public's image of Walt Disney was just that, only a false image. Mosley also writes in his biography of Walt Disney, Many of the myths that have been created by the publicists about Walt Disney are unpalatable, unbelievable, and unsatisfactory because so much of the real Walt Disney has been deliberately concealed. Again, and it's the exact same thing for his theme parks, so much of the original agenda of these theme parks and these uh, movie subsidiaries, they've been concealed. So when you hear truth, it just seems unbelievable because it's so against what you've been brainwashed into thinking. Uh, he goes on to say, now this is a guy that reporting on this, Walt Disney had grave flaws in his character. Uh, that was uh, end of quote there. Years ago, an Illuminati grandmaster and programmer, mind control programmer, stated, quote, if the world only had eyes to see the fibers which lay under the surface of Walt Disney's image, they would tar and feather him drag him through the streets if they only knew what Disney's primary goals were. See, his goals isn't wholesomeness. It's the exact opposite. The whole, I mean, hopefully we've proven that already. The actual goals are the exact opposite of what you might be thinking Disney is all about. Wholesomeness? No, it's to draw you closer to the devil. To get you more and more deceived. Walt had black hair with a black mustache, bright quick eyes, he was about six feet tall. He used his own facial features to clue artists into how to draw Mickey Mouse's features. He liked specially rolled brown cigarettes, which he smoked up to 70 a day. Wow, 70 a day. And I need to do a whole teaching on smoking as well, and on marijuana and these types of things, because that that's a whole other thing. There's a very large demonic component with that, okay, and um, and it's an addiction, and it's a incredibly powerful addiction, and the Bible says that we're supposed to have the rule over our own body, and that, that we shouldn't be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit, and for so many people that are addicted to cigarettes, and some addicted to pot, I had some roommates in college before I was saved that were addicted to pot, and um, it's an addiction. 100%. And it's of the devil. 
uh, going further, it says he picked up smoking, the smoking habit in the army. He loved expensive scotch whiskey, red sunsets, and horses. He had a vacation home in Palm Springs, California called the Smoke Tree Ranch. He often wore the ranch's letters, S-T-R, emblazoned on his necktie. He played lots of golf with Bob Hope and Ed Sullivan at the Smoke and Tree Ranch. His main home was an estate in the Holmby Hills. The Holmby Hills estate was located in a plush area where lots of rich show business families lived. It was located between Bel Air, which is actually an occult acronym for Satan, Bel Air, Bel Air, California, and Beverly Hills. Walt Disney spent many of his nights at the Disney Studios. He later had his own private quarters at the center for Disneyland. He had recurring bouts of insomnia. For his nerves and insomnia, he would take alcohol and tranquilizers. And again, he was, you know, he drank heavily and he drank, had tranquilizers, which you get into the whole mind-altering pharmacia thing. He'd go weeks on end without sleeping, without stepping foot on Holmby Hills Estate and even seeing his family. So, so much for the family man facade. His God was his empire. Okay? And yet, what did he promote? Family. Wholesomeness. See what a lie? The main topic at the studio by the staff during different time periods was Walt's bizarre behavior. Why? Well, he was demon-possessed! He would not be available until late afternoon many times when he would emerge from the studio's subterranean maze of tunnels. What were you doing down there, Walt? Who knows? Subterranean maze of tunnels? Subterranean means underground. Where supposedly he was, quote, chatting with the maintenance engineers every day. Yeah, he was chatting on end until, you know, late afternoon in the subterranean tunnels. Who knows? The value of the estate when he died was $35 million, of which Lillian, his wife, inherited half. In England, Walt spent time with the British royal family, oh, high-level Illuminati, and met privately with the Masonic prophet H.G. Wells. He calls him a Masonic prophet. In Rome... Walt visited privately. He had a private audience with the Pope, another high-level Illuminist, essentially, and the dictator Mussolini. In 1966, Walt Disney died. Prior to his death, he had investigated cryogenesis, one of my favorite things, which is where they freeze you. You ever see these cryogenics? And it is believed by some that his body is frozen somewhere in California, while others claimed he was cremated. Now, they've got, if you want to sign up for cryogenics, I'm just going to let you in on a little secret. You got two programs. You got one where they freeze your whole body. And I mean, they take you down to like almost absolute zero. <coughs> I mean, your, your body's at like, you know, negative whatever, 100 below zero, something like that. In this big, these big stainless steel storage tubes. That, that People pay money for this now. The, this is somebody that was absolutely, totally unsaved and wanted just, but knew they were going to die. 
and said, well, there's going to be advancements later in medicine. They, they can bring my, my lifeless body back to life. They could evidently find some way to get my, my, uh, my soul out of hell and put it back in my body. Well, there might be some soul that reanimates your body. These are called walk-ins in the occult. But it's not going to be yours. You're going to be burning in hell. And then the lake of fire. That person is. And I'm not glorying in that. I'm just saying that is the fate. And this costs, you know, literally, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this. Now, if you want to go with the economy program for cryogenesis, they cut off your head and they put that in, in cold storage so that they can just attach your head back to some other body, maybe the body of a 20-year-old Adonis if you're a guy or some, you know. It kind of looked weird though if you had a real old head on a young body. I don't know. Kind of be crazy looking. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's the economy program. And that's the one I, see, I, I don't make a lot of money, so that's the one I went with. Just kidding. Sorry, teasing, teasing. Now, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, that's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to no stupid... Yeah, put me on deep freeze. Um, you know, that's what I'm about. How crazy. But, yeah, they, they pay good money. I, I, I think Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry, the guy that wrote Star Trek, his was the best, though. He was launched in a rocket into outer space and is out there somewhere in outer space. Flying around. Go, Gene, go. Now, his soul's in hell, but his body's in space. So, anyway, just a little side note there. Uh, according to one source, the inspiration for Walt to create um, Mickey Mouse was when he came up, was when he was unemployed, and he saw a mouse in a gutter. Uh, there are quite a few stories in circulation as to where the idea came from. A guy named Oob... Ubelworks, I don't, can't pronounce his name very well, but it looks like Ubelworks, claim he thought Mickey up as an animator at an animator's meeting in Hollywood. In fact, Ubelworks told Walt that Mickey Mouse, quote, looks exactly like you. Same nose, same face, same whiskers, same gestures and expressions. All he needs now is your voice. That was the end of quote. Walt often did serve as Mickey's voice. I don't know if you knew that, but Walt Disney actually did serve as Mickey's voice. Um, Mickey had kind of a high-toned voice. I don't know if I'd be wanting to do that voice, but a book put out by Walt Disney Company in 1988 reveals that Walt Disney told Ward Kimball, quote, quite frankly, I prefer animals to people. End of quote. Walt usually was the voice behind Mickey Mouse even though he wasn't the actual artist. His mother was chilly for years about the work Walt did. In other words, she didn't like it, his mother. Okay. Around 1940, after much pleading, he finally got her to watch Mickey Mouse. His unsupportive mother, which we would learn within a few years, was not even actually his biological mother, which might have explained her chilly behavior toward Walt. In other words, he was illegitimate. His, his, his unsupportive mother told him she didn't like Mickey Mouse's voice. To which he told her it was his. And then she responded by saying he had a horrible voice. Oh, poor Walt, spurned by his mother. And then 
Quote, the cold towel she threw on Mickey Mouse helped convince Walt to quit making Mickey Mouse cartoons. Very few Mickey Mouse cartoons came out after Walt, after um, this happened with his mother. In the very next Mickey Mouse full-length feature cartoon, Fantasia had Mickey Mouse, but he was silent, mostly. She didn't like the voice. Fantasia, Mickey Mouse, which is a total witchcraft, from top to bottom, isn't that funny? Mickey Mouse hardly talked at all. Is this a weird coincidence? I don't know. Walt's idea for the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and again, a sorcerer is, is like a, um, you know, somebody that engages in witchcraft. The Sorcerer's Apprentice was based on some of his own ideas, Walt's ideas. Walt had, had the dream, which he would use for Mickey Mouse and the Sorcerer's Apprentice, of having complete control of the earth and its elements. People that are involved in high-level occult are always concerned with having control over the elements. The earth, the wind, the fire, the water, the, all these elements, a lot of times, depending on what type of thing they're trying to conjure, need to be present at the time of the witchcraft being performed. It's like that rock band, Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know? That was, that was, an, that was an occultic theme. So, anyway, uh, going further... Disneyland and Disney World were partial fulfillments of dreams, of a dream for that control over the world. Because in, in a lot of ways, these Disney World, Disneyland, they did, he had control over the world. It's a deceptive control. And it wasn't like a control like, you know, a dictator over a country, but it was more subtle. And remember, Satan is the most subtle beast of the field. That's how he was portrayed in Genesis 3, when he beguiled Eve. Walt's final pet project was just prior to his death was the meticulously restored version of the witchcraft film Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, like a broomstick a witch would ride? Well, that was his pet project just prior to his death. And it was the meticulously restored version of that witchcraft film, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Walt's dad had a serious gambling problem and passed the spirit of gambling onto his son Walt. And again, these are spirits. Generational curses. The sins of the forefathers are carried to the third and fourth generation, according to the word of God. Walt never graduated from high school. He had a natural love and a flair for artwork, although, contrary to his pu public image, he never became proficient at it. He never really, he had a flair for it, but he never really became proficient at the uh, artwork. He joined the army in World War I as an ambulance driver, by lying about his age. During the war, he also chauffeured dignitaries. He also did some other things that were very revealing. He enjoyed drinking and gambling while in the service, where he ran a scam where he doctored German artifacts picked up on the battlefield to sell to people. So he had these artifacts that he picked up on the battlefield, and he doctored them in such a way where he sold them at a premium price. So Walt Disney was all about lying deceptions and putting on a facade and a veneer of something authentic and something real from his very earliest business dealings. He didn't do anything different with his empire. It was a facade of something real, but it was a counterfeit. Isn't that interesting? War relics were tampered with to get them into shape to get the most money from them as possible. Walt took the battle souvenirs and dressed them up, for instance, coating the insides of the helmets with grease and hair and blood, and then putting holes in them to make them expensive souvenirs. 
Oh, that's sick. This shows that Walt was willing to build illusions if paid the right price. He could be deceptive if he saw an advantage to it. From his gleaning, from gleanings from things Walt said to people, it appears that as a child, he'd seen the darker side of life. For instance, his father had a habitual habit of beating him in the basement. He had some interest or exposure to magic as a child, real magic. Bob Thomas writes, quote, Walt took a boyish delight in the playing and playing tricks on his parents. He was fascinated with magic tricks. After the military, Walt hoped to have a career as an artist. He applied to an advertising agency of Pessman and Rubin. Roy, his brother, claimed that Pessman and Rubin hired Walt as a personal favor to Roy, uh, who handled the agency's account at the bank Roy worked at. Now, Roy was his brother. Walter lasted, uh, Walt lasted a month until the aver- advertising agency let him go due to Walt's singular lack of drawing ability. That was a quote from them. He didn't have any ability. It's like Hitler. He wanted to be an artist, but he turned out, you know, he turned out to be sketching on greeting cards and he was a failed house painter. Walt was the same way. He wanted to be an artist, but he didn't have any talent. Isn't that weird? The parallels between him and Hitler? And they both lived around the same time frame, too. Exactly the same time frame. So, that's just interesting. According to the current biography in 1952, and in ni- uh, according to current biography, which was dated 1952, in 1923, Walt and Roy had $290 together between them that they had saved up. They borrowed 500 from another Disney, one of their uncles named Robert Disney, and began to try to make cartoons. Robert Disney, this was their, I guess, rich uncle, had retired in the Los Angeles area in Edendale, California, after a successful mining career. Robert had always been close to Walt's, Walt's father, Elias, and had helped Walt and Roy out when they came to California. Walt loved to study Charlie Chaplin as well. Um, so, Walt scrawled notes about his body language, facial features, and his gag methods. He also read everything he could about animation and cartooning. They worked out of their uncle's garage in Hollywood, California. They were finally able to make a good cartoon called Steamboat Willie in 1928, which became an instant hit. As with many things in life, the cartoon not only... Um, was good, but Walt finally had, quote, the right connections. And this is where things, you know, start to take off for him. On November 18, 1928, Steamboat Willie was shown in a small, independent theater without any advanced promotion or advertising. Now, remember, this is the foundation. This is the when it all first started happening for Walt Disney. They showed the Steamboat Willie cartoon in a small, independent theater without any advanced promotion or advertising. But amazingly, the New York Times, Variety Magazine, Exhibitors Herald, all ran rave reviews about the cartoon the next day. That is weird, unless you have connections. Was this an accident? Did journalists from all these prestigious periodicals just happen to go to this tiny independent theater where there was no advance notice? No, it was connections. 
The reason the elite decided to promote Walt Disney after Steamboat Willie came out as a Hollywood's newest boy wonder was to deflect enormous bitterness that had been generated by the stock market collapse toward Jewish financiers. Hollywood, even in its first two decades, was known as Babylon in Sin City. It was, it was aimed at deflecting all of the negative press that Hollywood had brought on itself as well. The movie industry was well known to be run by a rich Jewish elite. Now, again, this isn't turning into some anti-Semitic thing. It was just happened to remain a fact that, yes, they were in control of some of the highest levels of, um, of uh, the finances and the highest power positions. And much of the Illuminati is controlled by these very rich Zionistic Jewish elite families that all participate in the, in the Kabbalah. But Jesus said regarding them and people like them that they are of the synagogue of Satan. They call themselves Jews, but that they are of the synagogue of Satan. So that's how the Bible refers to them. So, and many people blame the stock market crash on the moral degradation that Hollywood had introduced to this nation. They were, and, and again, that, you know, I, I understand that it was contrived, but um, to a certain extent, it, may have, uh, it was probably the judgment of God as well. There were calls for government regulatory groups to stop the smutty Hollywood films. I mean, back then, it was a simpler time. I mean, there, there was a higher moral standard. I mean, today, it's just terrible. But back, I mean, you do stuff today that they would have never been able to get away with back in 19, even the 1920s, 1930s. But things that are, you know, normal today would have never been accepted back then. Ed, Edgar Magan, the spiritual leader of the major movie makers, who were part of the Los Angeles B'nai B'rith, which is a which is a Zionistic uh, group with a Jewish, you know, facade and veneer, B'nai B'rith reportedly encouraged those um, of these. Jewish Zionistic elite movie makers that Hollywood needed to protect itself by putting Walt Disney in the limelight as a quote Christian white knight with family values. They had he was their boy to deflect all of this negativity that was coming out against. And now they had even more of a reason because the depression, and they could have said this is the judgment of God. We've embraced Hollywood and all of its smut and filth. So then, what did they do? What did Satan do? He brought in. This, quote, Christian veneer, Walt Disney, wholesome white knight with family values to deflect all of this detention, all of this attention off Hollywood. And Hollywood could actually say, see, look, we're doing our part to promote wholesomeness now. By the way, this Edgar Magan, Magnin, who was this spiritual leader of the movie makers was nicknamed the, quote, Rabbi to the Stars because he was the, quote, Hollywood Rabbi. In the 1930s, the movie industry made a production code which stated that the industry must make a special effort to make movies appropriate for children. Hollywood directly praised Disney in that code as was an exemplary model of what the movie industry wanted to do. With the power of B'nai B'rith and the ADL behind him, Walt began sailing to fame. Movie studios that had been turning out smut 
with lots of sex and violence, all jumped on the bandwagon to show Walt's clean, wholesome cartoons. Walt was the facelift Hollywood needed after the Depression, which caused Americans to think about American morals. Well, when you're under... If you're in the Depression, you've had everything taken away from you, you start evaluating you know, your own life. When everything's going great, a lot of times you don't evaluate anything. Many of the regular movie makers were so corrupt they were out of touch with moral issues. But Walt Disney knew black from white. And again, this was this was, you know, the roaring twenties were were, you know, full of wickedness and decadence, at least at the time, relative to those times they were. I don't think it would have been even anything compared to today, but at the time it was. The Jewish movie makers pushed the Walt the man, Walt Disney, they considered as their best hope to the front of the pack, who was billed as the fundamentalist Christian, I'll bet he was a Masonic Christian, quote Christian, who rarely stepped foot in a church. Um, There's a book they quote from here, Walt Disney, Hollywood's Prince of Darkness. You might want to get that book too if you want to know more about him. Hollywood's Prince of Darkness, Walt Disney. That was on page 50. Strangely, the biographies indicate that Walt quit doing the actual drawings in 1927, and that Walt devoted himself entirely to the development of the cartoon business, such as raising money. In other words, the image of Walt Disney being the artist who has created Disney cartoons is actually inaccurate. The Disney brothers actually hired many other artists to do the artwork. If Walt quit drawing in 1927, and their first marketable cartoon was in 1928, that clearly shows that Walt did not do the actual cartooning. (laughs) He continued to oversee the work, walking in and rigidly inspecting what was being done to suit his own intuitive tastes. Actually, the genius cartoon artist or animator who made Walt Disney a success was Ubelworks. That guy I talked about, or uh, that's that's how it looks to be, Ubelworks, about whom Walt, on a number of occasions, said, "quote was the best animator in the world." End of quote. And you know, if and it's obvious that the Illuminati in Hollywood was promoting him. They would make sure he was surrounded with the best of the best. Without Ubelworks to take Walt's ideas and turn them into reality, Walt would have never become famous. Well, again, and I, I, I think he could have become famous as long as Hollywood and the powers that be were behind him. Ubelworks was an incredible genius who had a sense of line, a sense of humor, patience, organization, and a great sense of what Walt wanted. Walt treated him cruelly at times, interrupting him, playing tricks on him, and not being totally honest with paying him. But he stayed with Walt over the years and made Walt the success that Walt became. Actually, the devil made Walt the success that he became, really. Another unknown great artist was Floyd Gottfredson. Gottfredson, okay? Floyd Gottfredson drew all of Mickey Mouse's cartoons from 1932 until 1975. Wow. 1932 until 1975? That's a long time. Which is a period of 45 and a half years. Floyd Gottfredson was a Mormon born in a, born in a railway station in 1905 and was raised in a tiny Mormon town of Sigurd. 
1931, Floyd totally took over Mickey Mouse's drawings. He would take suggestions from Walt on what to draw. For instance, Walt puzzled him by insisting he do a cartoon series of Mickey Mouse committing suicide. Floyd had said, Walt, you're kidding. But Walt thought the series on suicide would be funny. Over the years, Walt Disney products never mentioned Floyd's name. The bulk of the fans were led to believe that Walt did the cartooning of Mickey Mouse for himself. For himself, This guy was an egomaniac. He wanted all the praise and all the glory to fall on him. And that's why he had to have the squeaky clean image. That he wouldn't let anything tarnish. Or that the establishment wouldn't let anything tarnish. Walt was awarded 32 personal Academy Awards for work that was done by his studios. Walt Disney's famous signature was actually designed by someone else and was actually taught to Walt. You know, the big signature you see on a lot of his cartoons? That was a fake lie, too. Everything about the guy was fake. Walt could only make a crude Disney signature, so he delegated the writing of the signature to several artists, including Bob Moore. Disney's publicity artist. That's who Bob Moore was. Later, after much practice, he learned to make it well enough to do it, for, to do it publicly. Many people who wrote letters asking for his actual, actual signature who actually did have Walt's real signature, thought that they had received forgeries by his staff. Because his famous Disney signature was so crude. <laughs> How stupid. You know, but this is what you get into here. The nicer looking ones were the forgeries. One cartoon animator who joined Disney in the 1940s recalled that Walt told him the first day, quote, you're new here and I want you to understand just one thing. What we're selling here is the name Walt Disney. If you can't swallow that and always remember it, you'll be happy. If you can swallow that and remember it, you'll be happy here. But if you've got any ideas about seeing the name Ken Anderson, which was his name, up there, it's best for you to leave right now. In other words, it was all about building Walt Disney and nobody else mattered. You work here, you get paid, you go home, you don't take any credit for nothing. Walt grew up fascinated with the occult and in an abusive home situation. He was fascinated with cartoons, nature, and children. He had an intuitive sense for quality cartoons that would appeal to children. At some point, the syndicate got him indebted to them. You know what at some point it was, probably? The Steamboat Willie reviews. That's when everything took off. And if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? He wasn't a righteous man to begin with. But he got himself indebted right off the bat. They owned him from the very inception. He has some review of some obscure cartoon in some independent movie theater with no advance notice and the New York Times and all these big magazines are praising him. Come on. He was indebted right off the bat. At that point, he was their man. He owed them a debt that they held over him in secret and that's always the case with all of these secret societies. They always have copious amounts of information they can frame you with and control you with at their disposal. Those types of people they'll let get into high levels. But they have a lot, you know, they have a lot over them as well in secret. Now in secret, Walt became a porn king, pornography king. A victim remembers that he was sadistic and enjoyed snuff pornography films. I'm just, I'm just reading this. 
Why would that surprise you based on what I've just told you? Shouldn't. His interest in children was far from altruistic. The Habsburgs, which is the 13th Illuminati bloodline, had a, quote, sex salon in Vienna, where a pornography pornographer named Felix Salton worked. Felix Salton wrote a book called Bambi, which was then translated into English by the infamous communist Whitaker Chambers. The elite were just beginning to form the roots of the environmental movement. The book appealed to Disney because Disney liked animals better than people. In the book, tame animals view humans as gods, while the wild and free animals see humans as demons. The book begins with both free and tame animals viewing humans as rightly having dominion over them. In the end, the animals view all humans as simply being on the same level as the animals. A vicious animal is only fit to be killed. Disney instructed his animators to make animals to be like humans. I want, And then he said, Disney said himself, animals need to be human. I want people to forget they are watching animals. End of quote. Bambi was to receive, this is the, the movie Bambi. I can remember watching this movie as a little kid and thinking, wow, all these wonderful memories of Bambi. I can remember that. I even had the book and... Bambi book and the movie and the whole nine yards. Bambi was to receive a Christ-like manger birth with the animals hailing him as a prince, quote, prince. Due to his sexual problems, Walt Disney at one point permitted himself to be subjected to the packing of his genitals with ice for hours at a time. That was according to Disney's um, Hollywood's Dark Prince, page 83. Children were instructed to call Walt uncle, quote, uncle Walt. Is an example of this were the Mouseketeers. For those who know how mind control programmers have traditionally liked to be called uncle, quote uncle, by their child victims, the insistence by Walt to be known as uncle is distasteful. From what this author has learned from some sources about Walt's non-public life as a hidden sadistic pornography king, it raises some questions about other parts of his life. For instance, Kenneth Anger in his book Hollywood Babylon 2, page 192, says some animators stated that the boss, Walt Disney, seemed to have fallen in love with a boy. And there may be some truth to this, end of quote. The boy who Walt fell in love with was a small, young, attractive boy actor named Bobby Driscoll, who signed up in 1946 with Disney. He acted in the Song of the South and Treasure Island movies and was Bobby's voice and his voice was used in Peter Pan. Again, in light of the teaching I did on pedophilia, why should any of this surprise us? The devil takes care of his own. The devil also honors his own. So whenever you see a man high a man that's promoted highly esteemed among men in this world, Assume the most worst, despicable, abominable behavior. The devil only promotes his own. Bobby, I mean, when we're talking from a worldly standpoint, Bobby Driscoll was a very intelligent and attractive. Did Disney help or abuse him? If Disney was such an upbuilding, wholesome atmosphere, and this child actor had everything going for him, why did Bobby become a methamphetamine addict at 17 and die within a few years? My life's so wonderful. He, he died, you know, he became a meth addict and died in a few years. Why didn't his talent and early career lead to something positive in his life? 
From those who knew Walt personally, one learns that he had an obsession with the um, buttock part of the anatomy. He enjoyed jokes about this part of the anatomy, which he told his staff quite frequently. The staff edited out many of his crude posterior jokes from cartoon scripts, but two examples that got by editors are the Christmas special, where a little boy is unable to button his drop seat in his pajamas. The little boy's problem in maintaining his modesty is the running gag of the cartoon. In other words, his buttocks are exposed in the cartoon. I remember that. I remember that. Um, and then, in the end, Santa, which should be conferred to as Satan, gives him a chamber pot. And the second example is a paddling machine used on the wolf in The Three Little Pigs. Numerous Disney cartoons feature buttocks of characters provocative, provocatively, provocatively twitching. Sorry. After World War II, Walt Disney was called upon by Hollywood to testify in their defense at an un-American hearings which were carried out by congressmen who were concerned about the heavy communist influence within Hollywood. Remember, his dad was a socialist. Okay? He was brought up in that environment. So Walt was actually called upon by Hollywood. Why? Because they owned him. Okay? To testify in their defense, Hollywood's defense, in these um, hearings which were being carried out by congressmen who were concerned about the heavy communist influence in Hollywood. Walt downplayed any communist influence in Hollywood to Congress. Interestingly, Walt's father was an outspoken, outspoken socialist party leader in the United States who advocated a socialist new world order. He regularly voted for socialist presidential candidate Eugene Debs. One of the first drawings Walt did as a boy was to duplicate the socialist political cartoons he found in a socialist periodical that was entitled Appeal to Reason that his father had actually subscribed to. When Walt asked in the 1930s how his father felt about socialism's success, his father Elias said, quote, Today, everything I fought for in those early days has been absorbed into the platforms of both major parties. Now I feel pretty good about that. End of quote. Well, this guy, Walt's dad, would really be happy to see what has happened today under Obama when we've got an openly, essentially, socialistic, communistic, Marxist, fascist, whatever you want to call them, presidential leader in America. Walt's movie, called Alice's Eggplant, and this was in 1925, was pure communistic doctrine where the red hen communist leads the working chicks on strike against Julius, the farm manager, representing the capitalists. I see everything was veiled. And, and high-level occultists love to communicate this way. It's a proven fact. The strike at Disney and the unionization of Disney in 1940 soured Walt toward communism. The workers at Disney publicly made personal verbal attacks on Walt, and he never forgave the humiliation. In spite of his public distaste for communism, his magic empire, uh, which was the castle where he was king, this was run like a socialist dictatorship, similar to the New World Order plans. Employees at Disney did not have titles. It was a faceless egalitarianism with an all-powerful 
dictator of Disney at the top. It was racially elitist, too. The only full-time African-American during Walt's lifetime at Disney was a black shoeshine man. Now, I'm telling you, I saw some. I saw a video series the other day that a uh, black gentleman had put up on all of the unbelievable racist clips from movies that Disney's put out. Dumbo, Lion King, um... Oh, man. And I've seen these movies, and, you know, at the time, you're watching it, it's like you're under that spell. You don't think a lot about it as a kid, or and you're not really picking up on it. But, man, it is the most in-your-face, flagrant racism I think I've just about ever seen. You don't have to do a whole lot of reading between the lines to see it. It's there in your face. But the only full-time African-American that was uh, working at Disney during his lifetime was a black shoeshine man. Was Walt a socialist of, of the National Socialist Nazi German variety? Arthur Babbitt claims, quote, On one, more than one occasion I observed Walt Disney and Gunther Lessing at Nazi meetings, along with a lot of other prominent Nazi-affiliated Hollywood personalities. Why, again, why would that surprise you? We're dealing with the depths of Satan here. He visited Mussolini. Said he visited, openly visited Mussolini before it got real, real bad. I believe that was in 1936. Huh. Well, Disney was going to meetings all the time, is what this uh, Arthur Babbitt said. Lessing was a mobster, was mobster Willie Bioff's crony. Bioff had spent his earlier days running a whorehouse before coming to Hollywood for the mob. In the final panel of the Mickey Mouse comic strip in uh, 619 of 1940, a swastika appeared. Some people have wondered what this and the other secret signals in the Disney work meant. Disney, um, the, the powerful elite that are very skilled at controlling people that rub shoulders with them, those who are beginning to become independently wealthy. I'm sorry, that didn't make any sense. But I read it the way it was written. Anyway, for instance, what they destroyed... For instance, they destroyed Robert Morris, a great financier of the American Revolution. They simply used the Hegelian dialectics on Walt Disney. Their unions and their mob made Disney Studio one of their prime targets. In other words, they didn't want him to get too big. Too... Too thinking that nobody can control me. They wanted to remind Walt Disney that he was still, could easily be controlled by them. And this is why they said that the, they, their unions and their mob made the Disney studio one of their prime targets. Because he was getting too big, evidently. Walt was vulnerable to the unions because he treated his workers terrible anyway. With long hours, low pay, in addition to repeated abuses to their dignity. Walt's, I mean, this guy sounds like an employer from hell. To work for, particularly if you had to deal with the guy one-on-one. -on -one. Walt's large number of employees essentially never received any credit or recognition for their years of creativity and hard work, which was all essentially stolen and credited to Walt by the establishment to build his image. I really don't feel sorry for him, sorry, because they're just working for Satan as far as I'm concerned. So I could care less if they were getting any credibility, but not for the reasons they state, you know. Granted, it wasn't right, but they, what they were doing wasn't right either. Um, let's see here. 
He goes on to say, I write essentially because someone might find some obscure exception to where he did treat somebody fairly. But across the board, Walt got all the credit for what his creative workers produced. Perhaps Walt needed the ego boost from all the purloined public praise, which he stole from his staff to be seen as the great animator because he wanted to be an art, uh, a great animator, but he failed. The praise helped soothe the wounds and the guilt that he must have bore inside if he had any conscience whatsoever. One worker recalls that Walt had no knowledge of draftsmanship, no knowledge of music, no knowledge of literature, no knowledge of really anything except he was one thing. He was a great editor. This may not be much of an exaggeration because Walt was a high school dropout who grew up in poverty on a Missouri farm. Walt's first attempt to direct the film, and last, was called The Golden Torch. Now, it was made in 1935. The film was an embarrassment. Walt had to pull it from distribution. If Walt lacked abilities to animate and direct, what was Walt's talent? Walt was the driving force, the spirit, so to speak, behind Disney. He was the director who was feared enough to demand more from his workers than they knew that they could give, and he could get it. He was the driving force that took a mob of artists and gag creators and shaped them into a powerful force to make cartoons and later movies. He was the hard-driving genius who knew what he wanted and got others to create it for him. He was the driving force that kept an army of costumed sanitation men meticulously cleaning Disneyland. In a normal year, Walt would have 800,000 plants replaced at Disneyland because Walt refused to put up signs asking guests not to trample them. Okay, and that's where we're going to stop for today. And I was right, there's no way I would have been able to get that into a part two. So we're going to go ahead and stop there for today, and we will continue part four the next time we meet, Lord willing. I'm going to go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us and letting us come together for another one of these teachings and meetings. I pray, God, that your truth would go forth, Lord, that you would forgive us for any and all sins we have committed as we forgive those who have sinned against us, Lord, that you would use these works, the, the body of Christ, my listeners, Lord God, for your glory, that through us you would lead many people to the Lord Jesus Christ, that your fear would be upon us, and that your fear would be against even our enemies and those that need to be saved, that you would draw them to your word, to your truth, Lord, and to the body of Christ, that they could lead them to thee. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask all these things. Amen.